Okay, so our scripture reading for today is Acts 11, verses 1 through 18. Peter explains his actions. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation in going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and, and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them and he, as he had come on us in the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, So then, even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> when you travel to Israel, most people get there through Ben-Gurion International Airport in Tel Aviv. The call sign for that airport is TLV. Tel Aviv, the modern coastal city on Israel's Mediterranean coast and the location of the portal to the world in that region. When you're there, in that city of Tel Aviv, when you see signs indicating that you are there, oftentimes you will see it referred to as Tel Aviv Yafo. 
Y-A-F-O, transliterated into English. What is with the Yafo? We all know it just as Tel Aviv. Yafo is the Hebrew name of the ancient natural seaport along Israel's coast that the Greeks renamed Joppa. The ruins of historic Joppa are enclosed within Tel Aviv, within the metro area, which in the 20th century grew from a small settlement to engulf its more historic neighbor. So when you think of Joppa in our story today, that's where Peter was. Think of Tel Aviv. Forty miles to the north along the Israeli coast is Caesarea. To distinguish it from another Caesarea in Israel called Caesarea Philippi, this is referred to as Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea of the Sea. It was the capital of Roman government in Palestine for more than 600 years. There, Herod the Great built an impressive man-made seaport and city in honor of Caesar. And this town exists today as one of the most well-preserved Roman-era ruins in the Mediterranean world. Very few tourists to the Holy Land do not stop at Caesarea. Joppa, and to the north, Caesarea. It's important that we recognize that this account that Peter is talking about, that actually is his recounting of what was told in chapter 10, which we didn't read. So go back and read the kind of play-by-play in chapter 10. It's actually told twice in a row. It's important we notice that this takes place on the coast. See, in the, the, uh, the pattern of the growth of the church, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, we've covered that, in Judea and Samaria, we've covered that, and to the ends of the earth. Welcome to the coast, gateway to the ends of the earth. They figure prominently in this encounter between Peter and Cornelius. Peter was in Joppa. Joppa was a Jewish town. You would expect a person of Jewish heritage to be there. Cornelius was a Roman centurion who lived in Caesarea. You'd expect him, a Gentile Roman, to live in Caesarea a Gentile foothold, as the town was in Jewish territory. And this sets up a scene where cultures clash and ultimately a barrier to Gentile belief in Jesus is removed. Like the TLV, International Airport, the coastal cities of Israel were gateways to different cultures. Picture a a flight departure reader board at SeaTac Airport or any major international airport. And you get a sense of what it was like at those seaports. 
if you wanted to go to the ends of the earth, you could get there by going to that port. Now, you've run into the word Joppa before in the scriptures. Do any of you know where? Jonah. The story of Jonah. So Jonah wanted to go in the opposite direction as far as he could go from the place God wanted him to go. And so he went to Joppa to catch a ship that would take him to the ends of the earth in another part of the world. Ships in Joppa and in Caesarea would load up to go to many places in the known world where people spoke different languages, where people wore different clothing, where they ate different food. Something very important to the text today. And where they organized their common life in different ways. We're talking about people and encountering people of diverse cultures. And past this point in Israel, you would need to be prepared to engage with people on their own turf by their own terms. Whereas up to this point in the expansion of the church, Gentiles were a minority where most people were Jewish, from here on out, in the expansion of the church, it was going to be exactly the opposite. What would that mean for Jesus' great commission? Like most coastal gateway cities, in Caesarea, the cultural diversity was always present. It was the first place you might expect to observe a clash of cultures in the story of Jewish-Christian mission expanding into Gentile populations. Roman soldiers were at home there with all of the comforts of Rome, including the food that was served in their homes. It was a cultural enclave, a veritable snapshot of the wider Roman world, declaring that beyond this point, beyond this portal, you'll find a lot more of what you see here. In early Christian mission, this was as far as you could go where Gentiles are the outlier, minorities in the culture. Beyond this point, the tables would be turned and the Jewish Christian followers would be in the minority. So this is why it's so important when we read in the first three verses of Acts 11 that the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter returned to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now in that accusation is a whole long series of, of, a, of a Bible lesson that we're not going to go into in depth. But it's very important that you know that by circumcised believers, it meant devout Jewish believers in Jesus. So they were Jewish. We, we haven't gotten to the point yet where, where, where the believers, right, Jesus' disciples, and all those who came to faith through Pentecost, they were all Jewish. And they met in the temple when they were allowed to meet in the temple. And they followed Jewish law. And Jewish law, as most of us are well familiar with, has very specific requirements for what you may eat 
and what you may not eat. Peter had criticism awaiting him when he returned from this mission trip. What's your experience of criticism? Have you been the target of critics? Have you been one who shares with others words of criticism? Criticism in the church has a long and colorful history. And this is the first, not actually, it's probably not the first time because we talked about the, the, uh, the issue with the, the, uh, the, the, the Greek-speaking widows and the Hebrew-speaking widows earlier in the book of Acts. This one specifically says that Peter was criticized. It started early. And a lot of criticism in the church happens around what we would call cultural issues. Clashes of culture. The question of, is something right? Is it right for an adaptation to occur in light of something that either is essential to the religion as a major or is more of a cultural element, which is a minor, that you can disagree on? So that's what's at stake in this moment. Is, are the dietary laws of the Old Testament, are those a fundamental when it comes to preaching Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? In this text, Peter gives witness that the Holy Spirit has given God's word on the subject and that the church is adapting and the answer to that is no. Followers of Jesus do not have to follow Jewish dietary laws. When it comes to criticism, the most constructive kind invites further conversation and explanation. That's a pro tip. And that's what we see playing out in Acts 11. Responding to the criticism, Peter amazingly kind of keeps his cool and responds by telling an orderly account of exactly what you read about the previous chapter if you're reading through Acts. He recounts those events and gives his conclusions about the encounter. The Gentiles had indeed received the word of God. Peter was witness to that. But the criticism from the circumcised believers, read Jewish believers, was that Peter had gone into the house of uncircumcised men, read Gentiles, and ate with them. Went into their home and ate with them. Perhaps one of the most universally understood cultural differences is the food that we eat. What it is, how it's prepared, the spices that are used, and how it is brought from plate to mouth. It's something we appreciate more and more as our world grows smaller and smaller. Especially in cultural gateway communities, the presence of multiple cultures lends to a very colorful and tasty culinary palette, doesn't it? Some of us enjoy living in this part of the world because we live in a cultural gateway community. 
Cultural expressions of food are anchored in people's homes, where the culture is most authentically lived. Some travel guides, including one local world-renowned travel guide in our region, suggest that to really get a taste of a different culture, we need to visit and even stay in people's homes so that we can experience that culture authentically. Because the home is where the culture, is the heart of the culture. It's where people live. And at the risk of oversimplifying things, there really are two ways of traveling internationally, aren't there? There's the way of traveling internationally when you eat their food, and there's the way of traveling internationally where you eat your food. Two very different kinds of travel. This was especially important to the early Christian believers and their outreach. Because the religious laws limited them considerably in what was okay to eat, when they reached significant Gentile populations, here's the real question. Were they going to ask those Gentiles to give up what they ate? Give up the practice of their culture and take on Jewish customs? that was a major potential barrier to the gospel. And Jesus commissioned to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. But Jesus also sent the Holy Spirit to guide the church in its mission, and the Holy Spirit was about to clear the way for an adaptive move. Verses 9 and then 12 of Acts 11. The voice, this is Peter speaking, the voice spoke from heaven, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them, these Gentile men from Caesarea. These six brothers, Jewish, with me, went with me and we entered the house of this man, Cornelius. Doesn't name him in this text as Cornelius, but in the previous chapter, we learned that the Roman centurion, the Gentile home into which Peter entered in order to dine with him, was Cornelius. The mission of the church is about the gospel and Jesus being at home in each culture. And the flip side is true as well. It's about each culture being at home in the church. When the Holy Spirit gave the okay for Jewish believers to enter Gentile homes and eat with them, it opened up literally all the homes in the world to the witness to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. I cannot preach any more strongly than that word. It changed everything. Everything. The first lesson that we need to learn from that is that unless you eat right now a 100% kosher diet, you're the one who now was able to have a relationship with Jesus. Sometimes we take this text and we talk about people far away. No. It was to you who like bacon for breakfast. It's you who like an occasional pulled pork sandwich. That's what's at stake here. Is that big? That's big news. Now, I'm sitting back here as mostly a plant-based eater. What? No, but seriously, it made a difference. 
it still makes a difference. We all, regardless of who we are, come from a culture that the gospel bridged to. The gospel did not start with a culture. You know, in the Presbyterian church, I, we just had a, a first part of our new member class last week, and we talked about Presbyterian things, and I always get to tell the story of that, you know, as we oftentimes, because most of us are, are here uh, transplanted from other parts of the world, that uh, we often tell our stories, if we go back far enough, we have to, to basically cross an ocean to get there. It's the same with the Christian faith. We have to cross the ocean to get to Jerusalem, to Tel Aviv, uh, to Jer- and, and to Israel. And, and for Presbyterians, we would go back to Scotland. Or if we go back to John Calvin, that would be in Switzerland. Well, that's not where Jesus did his ministry. That's not where the Holy Spirit came to the disciples on Pentecost, was it? No. The gospel had to bridge to those cultures. The gospel had to bridge from, from Greek to the vernacular which for us is English. But English isn't a special language in relation to Christianity. Other languages, Spanish, German, Swahili, all of those are languages that the gospel and the words of Scripture are translated into. Culture is bridged. And isn't it amazing that faith in a Jewish rabbi can be something experienced by people who love bacon. And this adaptation opened up the gospel to all believers, with very few exceptions, such as Messianic Jewish Christians today. The church is full of beautiful cultural diversity throughout the world. We have the privilege of being a part of really a smorgasbord, which, by the way, is a cultural specific. Some of you could tell me about what a smorgasbord really is, but I'm using it figuratively as just a, a table just opened up and with all kinds of different dishes on it from all kinds of cultures. That image is an image of the church in the world today, and it's a beautiful dare I say, delicious thing. One of my favorite moments in our Presbytery life here in the Northwest Coast Presbytery is that we happen to be one-third Korean-American in terms of numbers of Presbyterians in our region. And, uh, and we fellowship together. And back in the day, pre-COVID days, when we actually had Presbytery meetings at churches and ate with them, uh, and hopefully we'll get that back, When a Korean-American church hosted, man, were the Anglos excited about that. And it's because the food was so delicious and so lovingly prepared and really the highlight for everyone in the Presbytery. Well, we conclude recognizing that, that this church, diverse in cultural expression, but together around the person of Jesus Christ. We consider what Peter says about being in God's way. As one who has been welcomed, 
Who am I to put up barriers to exclude those whom God calls? This is how Peter concludes. Verses 17 and 18 of Acts 11. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they, the people who had criticized Peter had no further objections. It's always nice when you're a criticizer to actually get off that horse when you don't have to criticize anymore. They, they had no further objection and praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, it's really important that we recognize that the whole religion rooted in Jewish faith has not been discarded, right? This is about, it's still centered on repentance that leads to life. So sin is still a part of the equation, and Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is still a part of the equation. But the question for us when we reflect on what Peter said is, am I ever in God's way? This amounts to checking ourselves to make sure that we're not putting up unnecessary barriers to people of diverse cultural expression coming to faith in Christ. And it's important, especially for a growing church, for a church that wants to reach out, as this church clearly does. Are we in God's way? Am I in God's way? Cultural diversity in the church, sometimes it, it helps not to, not to go to the, the most controversial things uh, like that are the fruit at the top of the tree. Sometimes the low-hanging fruit is sufficient. So there's generational cultural differences, aren't there? So if we're a multi-generational church, we're going to have those different expressions. There's different ethnic backgrounds in the church. I mentioned earlier that, that, uh, that Presbyterians mostly hail from Scotland and Switzerland. And, and uh, when I trained in a Presbyterian seminary to be a pastor, uh, I learned that there are some people whose lineage goes back far enough that it actually goes back to Scotland. So what am I? A person who was born into a a Roman Catholic family, I'm half German and basically half Irish, not the orange color Irish, right? Harold's my, my friend there. Not the Presbyterian kind of Irish, the, the green Irish, the Roman Catholic Irish. Again, that's part of the various ethnic backgrounds that, that God brings together in the church, that, that me, that I can be a Presbyterian minister and help teach you about John Calvin and John Knox? It's amazing. It also can be music preferences. And while I think that's easily accessible for us because it's low-hanging fruit, it might be one of those pieces of fruit way up high for us because we have some very specific cultural tastes when it comes to music in the church. A couple examples, though, of ways that the church has bridged cultural divides. Um, one has to do with language. Language is a huge uh, aspect of this. Um, at the Second Vatican Council for the Roman Catholic Church in the early 60s, just an amazing sea change happened when the, the doors were opened for the Mass to be celebrated in the vernacular language and not in Latin. It really changed how, how, how 
close to a billion people on the planet worship. And speaking of the language of the people, we have that opportunity to, to bridge cultural distances with people for whom English is not their first language. And what about our cultural idioms? This is where generational stuff comes in. You know, I'm classically trained in Reformation theology, uh, yet do quite a bit of translating of old words into new language. You don't actually hear me preaching a lot about predestination or about sanctification or those words. Uh, because I intentionally take those words and put those into different words so that people in our culture can understand those, can understand the gospel. Like language, music also uh, is something of cultural tastes. For some, real Christian worship requires a pipe organ. And that's for, that's for real. Now, here at North Creek, we've always been in a different place than that because guess what we don't have? We don't have a pipe organ. And it wasn't because, and I always mention this in our new member classes, it wasn't because we didn't have the money to buy a pipe organ. It's that this church was built with a cultural sensitivity or sensibility to be a place that, that, that didn't feature a pipe organ, but that would have other types of instrumentation. Did you know that organs were not part of the original design of most of the European cathedrals? That they were built centuries before the organ technology came to be? It's hard to imagine because the organ is so much a part of what we experience. Regarding different cultural preferences in contemporary music, I'm going to tell you a, a story that happened while I was with a gathering of Christians. It didn't happen at North Creek, and it's going to be important for you to know that. I was sitting across from a person, uh, a, a brother in Christ, uh, after experiencing a, a contemporary worship service that didn't include drums. It included a guitar. It included, actually, a professional classical violist who was playing, like, harmonies with it. It was, like, amazing. So at a meal following the worship, we started talking about it. And, and this brother in Christ said, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, that's not worship. That's not worship. You know, you can have preferences, but to say that singing hymns of praise, most of them were traditional hymns, hymns of praise to the tune of something other than a pipe organ, if you're locked into that, you're in God's way. And yet, as I think about that more and more, I think, you know, I guess I could probably go on in a lot of different ways and share my own story of how I might be in God's way. I don't hear that kind of sentiment here at North Creek, and I think that bodes well for a church that wants to reach out with the gospel. The challenge is how to be faithful to the gospel, how to be faithful even to tradition, but hold it loosely and allow for fresh expressions of the good news. Outreach is what makes this text relevant for the church and for Christian lives today. Because it involves everyone. 
May we be like those who responded to Peter's report, laying aside our criticisms to praise God, marveling in wonder that even to them, God grants repentance that leads to life. Amen.